It's that time, wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening on this week of thanks, we are quite thankful that you have chosen to tune in to DLC. Hey, are you uh, are you sitting outside right now in line, cold, and waiting for a, a Black Friday deal to start? Are you listening to us getting you through? We're going to be there for 90 plus minutes of gaming goodness because DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week. Delivered the way it's meant to be, and that's completely free thanks to our sponsors this week, Harry's and Squarespace. Squarespace! They made that possible, bringing the show to you. DLC, of course, the uh, the show all about games in their many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, and also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, that's spelled with two N's and one T. And I'm joined, as always, by my friend slash co-host... Slash nemesis. The guy who gets all the best deals and still hasn't been trampled on Black Friday. Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Hello. I want to give a, a quick shout out to, uh, I was at the Scottsdale Laugh Factory all weekend. Drove all night to be back here for the show. Originally I thought I was going to meet it, uh, miss it, but uh, met some awesome, awesome, awesome DLC listeners cool. in, in Scottsdale. It was really cool to come out. And those of you that came by and said, hi, dope, the two that just walked by and clearly i knew who you were uh so say hi <laughs> they fun weekend give shows, you the, man. The, the side eye I look at you askance maybe they maybe they, they, they were... knew the uh, chipotle problem so they just kept going. <laughs> they could they could smell oh, <laughs> oh that's too much too much hey, well we are glad that you made it back christian I'm, I'm very glad you're here we're also glad to have an awesome guest you know every week dlc stands for your downloadable canada and your downloadable christian but this week, oh man, I'm excited because DLC stands for Digital Life in Canada. Because we have a guy who covers Perfect. all of it, from gaming <laughs> to tech, for the Toronto Sun, as well as my old stomping ground, EP Daily. My buddy, Mr. Steve Tilly, is here. Hey, How's Steve, it going? welcome. I w- I'm so excited to find out what my DLC was going to be. I, yeah, I hope I, you're I happy with all it. These, a... I had all these horrible options running through my head, and it's it's relatively benign. <laughs> I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty pleased. Well, we aim to please. We aim to please. I'm so excited to have you here, man. It's been too long. We've been trying to have you on the show for a long time, and I'm so glad it finally happened. Um, I'm super excited to be here, and I haven't seen you in person in a while, and that makes me a little bit sad. Long. Yeah, too long, too long. Um, and, you know, if for us, it's our, uh, our big uh, Thanksgiving week. It's our big uh, Black Friday week. You, of course, in Canada already had your Thanksgiving in October. Well, we invented Thanksgiving. And yeah. uh, so after the U.S. copied us and, and made it all about football, we just sort of said, well, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to be the authentic Thanksgiving. We're going to go a month <laughs> earlier than everybody else. We eat, uh, we eat moose instead of turkey. I'm not sure if you're familiar with all the traditions. Oh, I, yeah. I guess you are. You got, a, you got some Canadian in your, uh, in your family. I've, uh, I guess I've traveled. Uh, I've traveled. Yeah. Um, also, you guys do Boxing Day instead of Black Friday, right? Boxing Day is your big sales day. Yeah, the funny thing is Black Friday has, especially over the last few years, it's really seeped up into Canada. Like we never, I would say five, ten years ago, we didn't have Black Friday. It just was not a thing. But it's such an overwhelming thing in the U.S. now that we have, you know, we have Best Buy Canada has got Black Friday sales. We've got Amazon Canada has got Black Friday sales. So we now get the best of both worlds when it comes to the crazy discounts. We get Black Friday on American Thanksgiving week and we get Boxing Day, which is, of course, December 26th day after christmas when everything goes on sale so it's like two two for one yeah that's buy how we t- do that's how we do in america all of our all of our traditions just seep they just seep <laughs> into other countries <laughs> they, they seep like chipotle through your digestive tract mm. well we will we will be talking a little bit about black friday it's actually become sort of like 
Black Friday week or Black Friday month because it, it feels really like has. Black Friday has starts earlier and earlier. And this year I was getting like, get into Black Friday on Jul- uh, November 7th. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? It's crazy. Um, you can't call it Black Friday if it's weeks long, but, but right. it's, a, it's, it's an exciting time for Yes, they can, Jeff. You call it your birthday and you make it weeks long. So It's true. And by the way, guys, happy birthday to me in August. <laughs> still going. Um, still, still going rocking, strong. Still rocking. Uh, all right. Speaking of still rocking, uh, let's start the show the way we normally do with Story of the Week. Story of the Week. It's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week. It's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. You can always submit stories for our consideration by using our hashtag on Twitter. That's uh, D-L-C-S-O-T-W with that hash symbol in front of it. Or by visiting our subreddit at uh, 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Also, we love getting your feedback at dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Lots of great emails today. We'll hit on a couple of them as we move through. But Steve, as our guest, you get first pick of news stories Woo-hoo! this week. So what would you consider to be your story of the week? Well, we're looking at this story about virtual reality, which I think we've been talking about for, well, 30 years now. But especially the last couple of years, we've been, we've been waiting for virtual, virtual reality to finally hit kind of the consumer mainstream. It seems like it's happening. It's imminent. It's this fall. It's early next year. And some of the predictions that we're seeing are, are kind of wild, that, that it's going to be mobile where the first inroads are made. But I find this this uh, this prediction that there's going to be almost a parity between console and mobile uptake on VR kind of wild. Like I just, I am so excited about VR. I've tried all the different platforms, all the different devices. I own an Oculus Rift DK2, which is gathering a lot of dust right now. But I'm really, really curious to see how it's actually going to be received by the larger, perhaps non-enthusiast audience um, I think stuff like the Samsung Gear VR is going to be a really interesting, like it, it is, it's, it's a really interesting way to test the waters and see how people are going to react to wearing these funny goggles on their heads and watching movies or playing games. But as a gamer, as a guy who wants to, you know, I want the full Ready Player One experience, man. I want to be in these worlds. I want the Matrix and these baby steps into VR. I don't know. I, I, I think some of the estimates that we're reading might be a little ambitious. What do you well, think? yeah, you're certainly uh, you're bringing up a, a, a topic that I'm in love with, obviously, VR. And this is an interesting article. This is uh, Superdata is a um, an analyst for the video game industry. And they are predicting 70 million VR headsets in the wild by the end of calendar year 2017. That seems a little crazy. I don't know. Even in, even in my wildest hopes, I'm not sure that's realistic. Yeah, uh, Christian wrote an interesting note on this story on our Google, <laughs> uh, which has a lot of ha ha ha's and go home, super data, you're drunk. Uh, so I'm not really sure what his opinion is on this. So let's find out, Christian, what do you think about this idea that VR is going to. So, so the idea is super data is saying first initial uh, uptake will be in these less expensive VR headsets like the uh, the. Uh, the Gear VR, which just came out, and mm-hmm. and anecdotally, a lot of the people in the chat room are even talking about. Uh, ETH Demon says it's sold out everywhere. Um, it's a hundred bucks. It's pretty inexpensive. You do need to have a Samsung device to use it, but they're saying that will lead the charge, uh, and they'll have eighteen million of those by the end of twenty fifteen, according to Super Data. And then uh, after this first wave, 
console gamers will spur growth because 31% of PlayStation owners say they want PlayStation VR, and 18% of PC gamers want say they would like to get Oculus Rift. So that leads them to this number of 70 million by the end of 2017. So Christian, tell me why that's crazy pants. Well, I haven't read Superdata's actual research note, so I don't know. This is coming from the, a, a story on a video game website, but actually it says about 31% of American console gamers plan to pick up a PlayStation VR, which if that's an accurate quote, um, the old attorney in me, uh, I know this is a clean show, <laughs> but enter a bunch of, bunch of expletives here because that is the dumbest thing I've ever read in my life. 31% of American console owners plan to get a PlayStation VR. So if you're assuming that's a cross-platform now, it's, it's just there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. And this is Mark Twain. This is the dumbest thing I've ever, ever read. Sony has announced that the PlayStation VR is going to be the price of a console. And you're telling me that a third of console owners, a third of American console owners, not even excluding current gen to current gen so one third of anyone in america that owns a console is expressed interest in the playstation branded vr helmet get the f out of here super data this is the dumbest research note i've ever read i know you're trying to get attention but this is sloppy this is stupid and the playstation vr is going to be a dud vr won't but the playstation vr will and it'll be just like the move and the Connect and any other peripheral that's ever come out for a console before. How am I the only person not drunk with stupidity? Well, what do you think the... What I'm is, what sassy is, today, and I don't <laughs> care. I was up <laughs> all freaking night. I did an awesome show in Scottsdale, <laughs> and then we drove back, and I got up at 5.30 with my kids, and now I'm breathing fire, Jeff. Watch out. <laughs> I think you're breathing fire, and also fire's coming out of different... Orifice. No, I'm clear. I got E. coli from Chipotle, people that are just joining the show, but I'm clear now. <laughs> yeah. So, Christian, what do, you, what do you figure is going to be the, the tipping point then? And if it, if it, is VR going to primarily be a mobile experience? I can't see, like you said, if, if the if the VR the PlayStation VR headset costs three hundred bucks, the uptake is going to be abysmal, and it's going to kind of kill or has the potential to kill VR right out of the gate. And if people say it's too expensive, it's too heavy, it's uncomfortable, it makes me barf. I, I don't know. I feel like this is the toehold that VR has to get really no. this year. And if they no. mess it up. Then what happens? So there's if you a, think there's you a think long the, curve. Okay, okay. So what's uh where is sort of the, the where's where's the tipping point? Where's the adoption finally gonna swing? What has to what has to be out or happen for people to say, yeah, VR is cool. I'm gear gonna... gear VR without requiring it require requiring it to be six hundred dollars. It's a low cost point of entry thing that you can take anywhere that doesn't require ten cables running to a two thousand dollar PC. Right. That already, it's already out. It's 100 bucks. You can't get them anywhere because they're sold it's out. It's not 100 bucks so well. because you need a $500 uh, fabric phone, to but, go but with it. But people don't think about buying phones in the same way they think about buying consoles. How many people already have own a, a Samsung phablet that's compatible with PlayStation VR? I mean, with Samsung Gear. Or well, enough people to make the gear be sold out right now. Do you I mean, know what I else think... was sold out? The Elite controller for the Xbox One. Sold out doesn't mean <laughs> anything when you release 100. Well, I don't know how many have been released, but I know. I, I'm. I hope that I hope that this is an indicator that it's going to do well. And I tell you that you keep comparing it to connect and you compare it to move and you can compare it to all these things. And I'm telling you that the difference, you may be right that these things are going to be too expensive and uh, too hard to market for the mainstream. But where you're wrong is that 
Nobody that tried Connect for the first time had the same experience that you have That's trying right. VR for the first time. Well, I'm not Nobody- saying VR isn't going to be a hit. I'm saying this article and this research from Superdata is wrong, and I'm saying that VR isn't going to be this. Well, you're saying PlayStation VR is right going to be a stinker. You you said that you said it's gonna, PlayStation VR no, is going to bomb. That was me this week. The PlayStation VR is going to bomb. Um, it's why is to- that different than anything else? Because More, the, PlayStation VR, the PlayStation VR is tied to a console, and it's a console peripheral for one specific thing. What about Oculus then? Oculus is, is I mean, you, PCs are obviously more ubiquitous, but you've got to have a pretty meaty rig to run Oculus properly. Do you think Oculus is going to be get a bigger slice of the pie? At some yeah. point, yes, because they're Facebook-backed, and they'll come, across, they'll come out with a more consumer-friendly product. So you're saying that Sony doesn't know how to launch electronics products. Are you kidding me? Of course that's what I'm saying. Has anyone been paying attention? <laughs> they said did pretty well with that, that whole PlayStation device that they put out. And I, I – you know what? And that I Xperia that, and um, let's see what else well, have they put out. Divisions. Oh, yeah. Yes. The the Walkman still banging, doing great Oh, now. you're going to bring up the Walkman? <laughs> the the Walkman was the, a triumph for that company. Right. They had the Walkman. It created an industry. They did a Walkman <laughs> and then they haven't done anything else. They did a PlayStation. Well, that's because we evolved the way we listen to music, right? I mean, the Walkman was an unqualified success at its right. time. And then they tried to do – it had no way to get into the MP3 market and they created crap. They created crappy phones that they doubled down on in what, 2010 or 2011 and they were crap and they got it completely out of the business. They've doubled down on TVs, which they make excellent TVs, but it was a huge loss for them because they were putting too much money into it and not getting the return because they couldn't compete. The PlayStation Vita I think is one of the best made handhelds ever, but the release strategy for it was an utter piece of crap. And it has no support, and they have abandoned it. The PlayStation 3 was a pretty big disaster for them, promising cell architecture in our refrigerator. So they put all this money to build this chip that was going to support everything we do. It did nothing for them. The PlayStation 4 is a hit because they finally got their head out of their butt, and they released a PC at a cheap price. Okay. Well, you get a lot of support in the in the chat room, that's for sure. Dap Today says nobody wants additional peripherals, and they always end up DOA. And people are agreeing there. A lot of people are bringing up the... PSP Go, the iToy, the SingStar microphones. Uh, <laughs> so Move, Wonderbook. I mean, the, let's the, just name them all. There are there's a lot of precedent for peripherals failing, and you have a leg to stand on there. I'm just saying that this is a fundamentally different experience mm-hmm. than any of those. And I think I Steve has, has my back there. Where <laughs> I think we all agree is that it's going to be very difficult to sell. 70 million of these in two years. <laughs> I hope so. I do think this is a a pretty rosy, unrealistically rosy outlook for VR, but I'm hoping they're right. Steve, what do you think? I, actually, I think I agree with Christian that I don't think the, the PlayStation VR is going to be hit out of the gate. It can't be. It just simply, you simply can't sell a peripheral that costs as much as the console itself. But I think it will be, it will be an inroad. It will give enthusiasts will give gamers a way to experience vr because once you get i mean we've all i assume we've all tried it we've all tried uh playstation or morpheus or oculus right mm-hmm. different headsets yeah once you get that thing on it's you're that's that that's sells it it and we did not see that with things like move or connect vr is just such a it's a transformative experience and it is really hard to argue against it being the future platform i think in 10 years it's going to be seems silly not to have i mean vr will just be what we do we'll have glasses on that will be how we experience our digital entertainment how we explore virtual worlds 
it is I just what I'm so what I'm so fascinated with is this initial step that we're seeing now because there are going to be major failures along the road. I'm not convinced Oculus is I'm even with the backing of Facebook. I'm not convinced that they're going to find the formula that convinces Joe and Jane Facebook to buy an Oculus Rift for their PC. I think it's got to be us. It's got to be the gamers driving this stuff. And I don't know, man. I mean, we have to see more of what PlayStation VR can do. Uh, you know, the, the, the hands-on that we've had with it shows some potential, but also a lot of problems. There's still, I don't think VR in general has still solved this whole motion sickness issue. I know that the latency's gotten better, the screens have gotten better, but there's still that that uncomfortable feeling, and it's not something that you can play for hours at a time. And if it's not something you can play for hours at a time, it's not something that a lot of people are going to be willing to jump in jump into right away. Well, uh, it's this is a debate that is ongoing between Christian and I. <laughs> I, I appreciate your input. I think that there's a lot uh, there's a lot of of correct things said on both sides. I'm I'm just rooting for it. In, in I'm a rooting big for it way. too. I want it to happen. I want. I mean. I, and especially the stuff like the Oculus with the Oculus Touch controllers or the, uh, the the Vive and the controllers they have, when you get that tactile sensation, it's one thing to be in the virtual world and look around and say, oh, this is so cool. But when you have controllers that sort of mimic the way you naturally use your hands and you're bringing your hands into the world, it makes such a fundamental difference to how you're interacting with the world. But then we get yeah. the problem of, okay, well, if I want to play like Elder Scrolls in VR, how am I moving around the world? I still got to have joysticks. I can't simply be a guy who has a controller that sends in for a sword. I've got to have a way that, that move, to move around the world that feels natural. And there's still going to be a barrier to actually making these, these completely immersive experiences that I really want. I mean, I, I just, I, I, give me the Matrix, man. I'll take, I'll take, I'll take the red yeah. pill, give me the Matrix. Me too, man. I, I think in very, very few years, it's going to feel weird playing stuff on a 2D surface. But Can I just throw this in here it's total kind of a non sequitur but uh guys don't knock larping like it's really cool i know it's not vr but like if you want to play real life skyrim get some friends together over thanksgiving instead of going to play basketball put together a quick larp tournament or something or like a I little feel like you're trolling you no trolling? i'm not 100 no, serious I, i've i've wanted to dabble i have friends who are interested there's some uh there's some big larp communities in, in Ontario and Quebec, and they have uh, major events, and they're they're open to newcomers. And we've talked about going out and trying this out. There's just that, I mean, as a guy who lives and breathes everything kind of nerdy and geeky, I almost feel like I'm intimidated by taking the next step. Into- you need to find a safe place. I wanted to talk to you about it before, Jeff, because I know I know this isn't tabletop time, but it really is great. I don't do it a lot, and I do it very passively. But when I lived in San Diego, uh, the park near me, the guys would play all the time, and they were very welcoming to new people. And it was out of a I'm comic book shop there cool. in North Park. It's great. I was up in uh, I was up in Berkeley this weekend visiting family, and we went to a park, and there was an uh, a LARP happening at the park where I was, and I looked with envy at at the fun they were having. So yeah. I'm down. I'm down. <clears throat> All right, Christian. Uh, what is your story of the week then? <sighs> I mean, it has to be VR, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 what, what I. It's a sl- kind of a slow news week, as it should be, I feel like. Um, but I do want to bring up the the Payday developer apologizing. One thing that other people on the chat have wanted to talk about is the Kotaku story, which I will mention briefly here. Uh, Kotaku ran a story on their website saying that they have been blacklisted yes. by Ubisoft and Bethesda. Mm-hmm. And I believe um, read that article on their website and form your own opinion. I don't know. I, if Jeff, if you or Steve want to talk about it, we can. But people in the chat kept bringing it up. So I wanted to acknowledge this. I'm aware of it. No, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Publisher's going to publish. Writer's going to write. Um, right. <laughs> payday 2. Go ahead, Steve. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I think, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I don't want to get too 
too into this particular story. But what I find unusual about that is that Kotaku is taking the stance that uh, we are doing a journalistic service by um, uh, by revealing games in production, um, you know, by announcing Assassin's Creed uh, Syndicate or or Unity before it was announced by by getting Fallout Four out there. I don't know. I I I. I think it's great that they are standing up to publishers, that they're not, uh, you know, that they're finding ways around this. But I don't think those kinds of things are necessarily journalistic service. It's, yeah, it drives traffic. It's great for clicks. It's great for attention. I don't think telling people that Fallout 4 is coming out and will be set in Boston three or four or six months before Bethesda is ready to announce it is necessarily, you know, it's not wartime reporting. You know, this you're not you're yes. not doing a public service by, by getting that information out there, you are doing a great job of bringing people to your website. Now, wow. that's fine, but I don't think that they, they're framing it almost as if they're, they're being repressed, you know, you know, oh, we we're just the, we're just the bastion of, of truthy tellers. How dare they, how dare they try to stop us from getting it out there? Well, the stuff you're getting out there is not, you know, it's not crucial information. It's stuff everybody was going to know eventually. You're just putting it out there earlier, making a lot of people kind of mad and and getting pinched for it. Well, here we yeah. go. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. I I I have a lot of strong feelings about this, and you know, so many people say that there should be this adversarial relationship between the gaming co-hosts of a and, podcast. Well, that that I agree. With. <laughs> you guys got that, um, especially when they spout nonsense. Um, but, I agree. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, uh, the you know there's a lot of this hullabaloo about you know when the when the Fallout 4 embargo people heard about the embargo and got all uh, you know agitated and there's this thing of like you should have an adversarial relationship between the publishers and the games press and it's like you know, this isn't politics and I and I don't think you should apply the same level mm-hmm. of of stridency to this kind of this is enthusiast press this yes. We are there to help people make informed buying decisions, and we are consumer advocates to a certain degree. But my God, I wish people who got all riled up about this stuff would spend half as much energy about stuff that actually matters, right. like politics and government and, and where where journalism really does mean something and need to have that kind of courage. It, it doesn't show courage by breaking an embargo date and posting your review early. That, but that's not it, what they were doing, nonsense. though. That's not what they were doing. No, 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 no but I'm doing. saying people are uh, suggesting that, oh, my God, you can't have embargo. You, can't, you shouldn't follow the rules that they set down because you're just a puppet. No, everybody's giving their <laughs> honest opinions at a, at a uh, predefined date by the publisher. Who cares? And in this case, I, I don't think – I agree with you guys. I don't think this kind of news is – should be held up with the same level of, uh, I don't know, uh, importance as, as other things. It's like, yeah, we knowing that Assassin's Creed syndicate was going to be announced in three weeks doesn't help anything. It doesn't, it isn't, uh, Oh, I think I disagree though. Okay. They're a video game website. So of course they're not going to report about an imminent threat about to happen in Los Angeles and break the the code open and find out that Jack Bauer is going to save the day. That's not what they write about in terms of like world importance. Nothing on Kotaku is ever going to be that because they report on video games. So if they're able to get news from a reputable source that talks about one of the upcoming biggest games to come out in a decade before anyone else and accurately, accurately report on what that game is, I think that is pretty noteworthy and newsworthy on the other hand i think a publisher 
is totally within its rights to be like, oh, you scooped us. Guess who's not going to invite you to our big, awesome mm-hmm. party at E3? Us. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I totally get it. So I'm not I'm not upset with Kotaku. I think good for them. At some point, they looked at like what drives us more traffic, going mm-hmm. after these scoops or getting a review up on day one, and they decided to go for these scoops for a little bit, and that might change. But I totally understand Kotaku not wanting to be like – I mean, I'm sorry, Bethesda not wanting to go, congratulations, here's a copy of our game early, because they don't need to do that. It it does think that in this enthusiastic, enthusiast press, you know, it's not like a movie where you can just rush out and see it the first day, like coverage takes time and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I don't I don't hate the publisher for protecting their, their no. business and doing what they're doing. They're not, it's not as if they're going to Kutako and like shutting them down, like, you know. Uh, hacking their website and right. <laughs> being destructive. No, I, They're just I, not I giving them free stuff. Go ahead, Steve. No, I, I'm going to say I completely agree with Christian as well. I, I think I think the, the thing I take issue with is Kotaku presenting this like they've like almost with indignation. Like uh, right. we are, we're doing what we do. How dare they? You know, how dare they? They try to shut us down. I, I, like I, exactly, I don't I don't blame them for publishing that information. I think if they had and they had a greatly well sourced scoop on Fallout Four with the the scripts for the characters and they were able to glean the setting and a lot of the characters out of it. That's the kind of stuff that a site like Kotaku should be publishing if they have access to it. But like you said, like you guys have said, don't turn around and then expect to have, uh, get, get favors from the publisher or have a good relationship with the publisher, but then also don't turn around and criticize or, or even be indignant about not having that relationship. Of course, if you, if no matter how much we work together towards a common goal, if I'm a publisher of a game and I want people to play it, your enthusiast site, you want people to read about your coverage, that's great. We work towards a common goal. But if you're going to sabotage that goal in some way, then then or sabotage that relationship in some way, don't be surprised when I don't want to play with you anymore. Yeah, and and I should I should be very clear. I, I think I, I you guys have both said it much better than I did. And I feel like I conflated two different stories into one. And I think it was probably confusing judging from the feedback I'm reading in the, in the chat room. I, I, I fear I came off uh, saying something or you guys hearing something I didn't intend to say. And that is, I, I don't, it, it, it is a conflation of two things when I bring up the embargo stuff with this story, because this didn't have anything to do with embargo dates. And I completely agree with what both of you are saying uh, in this case, in the sense of, yeah, go ahead and you, you find out scoops, go ahead and post them. But, you know, the guy who posts the the breakdown of the Apple phone that was found in a, you know, in a <laughs> yeah. bar isn't going to get invited to the Apple <laughs> event. Like the, they're they both have their their, you know, the right to not do the thing that they were going to do or right. do it. So, yes, you both have said it more eloquently than I. So. We'll yeah. On. Well, we, we dove in, so we, I don't yeah. need. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if there's something else that you want to cover, Jeff, we can we can move to another story. No problem. Uh, well, you were going to bring up this payday two thing, uh, which you know it, I think we kind of owe it to them to bring up in the sense that we made a real big deal about it um, when right. um, um, who was it that was on the show? We talked about this uh, just recently. Phil, I think. So Cole, Phil, right? yeah, Phil. Yeah. Um, you know, th- these guys introduced a – into Payday 2, uh, they introduced um, paid microtransactions that actually affected game balance. And this week they really made strides at least uh, from a PR perspective to make right with the community. I don't know how much of the game has actually changed, although I guess they changed the game balancing stuff or at least the ability to get all this stuff in-game for free 
was added in pretty quickly after the first announcement and the first backlash. But now this week, um, they sat down, they had this big interview with their uh, people from the community. They've been really forthright in, in having more transparency about what they're doing and, and really having more people on the staff involved in answering questions. Uh, it seems like the, you know, they literally said, we're sorry, we messed up. Um, how, what do you, what's your take on this, Steve? Do you think these guys are making right by their community? Um, what, what kind of staggers me about this? And, and we've seen this time and time again, and it, it makes me think back to the, uh, the original Xbox One announcement where Microsoft so incredibly misread the temperature of, of their fans, of their community, and, and their gamers by going with this always-on strategy. And uh, we've seen Microsoft again and again, sort of claw things back, change things after the fact. And that's great. And that's what the guy, the Payday 2 guys are, are seem to be doing here. I just don't understand how they thought this was going to fly in the first place. I, I want to be in on the meeting where they sit around and say, okay, we're going to sell virtual drills for 250 that you have to use to crack the saves. Ah, fans will love it. This will be great. You know, oh, there might be a couple of people who are not not super happy with this idea, but hey, this will be great. How does that conversation happen? You know your community so well. There's such a, a tight relationship between the developer and, and this, this community. I don't understand how this ever got past the drawing board. Yeah. Maybe That's they a didn't have a, a drill to get into the drawing board. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's. I mean, it's nice they're addressing it. I, I'm not entirely sure. Like, I mean, are they have they said they're going to take this out, or are they just sort of reacting? No, and try to. That, that's okay. the. I think that's the interesting part, right? And I'm sure this is a great first step. But it was like, hey, we're really sorry. We've angered a lot of people. P.S. Dot know. dot dot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they did change it so that you can earn right. all, yes. everything by putting the time, and I think that goes a long way in, in making people feel better. But. Um, I don't know. I, th- I hopefully this is a this is a blueprint. <laughs> Talk about blueprints. It's a blueprint for <laughs> other developers to understand that these communities. If you build the success of your game on the back of your community, exactly. then you need to value that, and you need to understand that communication with that community is 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 valued by them. So uh, you know, I think it's- that I, I hopefully this people will learn. It's such a weird misread. I just, I just don't get it. I just, I, I, again, I would love to hear the conversation that that led to this. So they know their community. They, you know, they these. This is a developer in the game that is very community driven. They're very, you know, they're very interactive. They're very, they have a great relationship. I just don't understand how this happened. How did this happen? Who you thought this hear, was a good idea? Here's their conversation, Steve. It went like this. Okay. Hey, I got a great idea. Let's uh, introduce some drills that you need to pay real money for, and then they'll give you perks for the game. That is a great idea. I have another great idea. Thirty-one percent of American console owners want to own a PlayStation. <laughs> now who's conflating stories? That was the conversation. Um, the the conversation in the chat room is still rampant about the previous story, and I, I just want to say one last. No, that's fine. It's good. I I think it's an interesting, healthy discussion, and one we'll probably have more of uh, moving forward, because people have this weird perception, I think, of quote unquote games journalism, but there isn't anyone that I know. And I don't think you can, it's hard to even point it out because there's these shadowy groups online that do try to point it out. But I don't know anybody that doesn't just give their honest opinion about things, Mm -hmm. regardless of all the hullabaloo of getting a game early or not getting a game early. People say their honest opinion about stuff and you see it across the board. You see scores varying wildly. You see people pointing out bad things about good games and good things about bad games. It's, it's, it's just, People giving their honest opinions. Anyway. Mm-hmm. 
My sure opinions a lot are of, brought to you by Microsoft. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get a lot of a lot of hate mail for that, but that's move on. But it'll just be uh, their yeah. honest opinion. It will be their honest opinion, and I, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I want to get to uh, our playlist because that's really going to be the most fun part. This time of the year is the best part uh, yeah. of the show is talking about what we're playing. But I do need to thank our first sponsor, which is Harry's. You've heard us talk about Harry's before because Christian and I both have gotten shaving kits from Harry's and have <gasps> used them to great success. Uh, this is an audio medium, but if you could see us, my goodness, would you admire our, <laughs> our clean shaven visages. Uh, Harry's is a solution for the hassles of buying shaving equipment. It is – it basically solves all the problems. You don't have to leave your house. You don't have to go to a stupid drugstore and ask the clerk to unlock the stupid case and and wait around and then pay an overpriced amount. It's it's high quality stuff, inexpensively shipped right to your door in an elegant, nice looking presentation. And guess what? It also makes a fantastic gift for the holidays. Oh my gosh! Do you have a do you have a person in your life that shaves? Bet you do. Harry's is a great thing to give out for the holidays. Um, it's it, over 1 million guys have made the switch to Harry's. That's a lot of guys. That's a lot of guys. And, uh, there are a lot of people using this product and, and we're one of them, two of them, at least. Do you use it, Steve? Have you used it? No, but I, as a guy who shaves his head, it's a guy who has a, a bald dome. I'm now completely enraptured with this. I want to try Harry's. I want Harry to come well, to my house. Is there an actual Harry? Is like Harry a guy? I think Harry is would, a guy. Would they send Harry to my home to actually? Well. They're going to send a box with Harry's little <laughs> logo on it. If that Does that work for you? I, I, I guess. I mean, if I have to do it myself, I guess. Hey, Steve, I'm going to sweeten the deal, buddy. I'm going to give you $5 off. How about Whoa! that? Whoa! All you got to do is go Christmas to harrys.com. Early. I'm telling you, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the coupon code DLC, and we'll hook you up with $5 off your first order. Sold. That's pretty awesome. Sold and sold. So you're gonna get uh, you're gonna get a starter set, which is uh, it's gonna be just ten bucks. That's pretty cheap uh, with the five dollar discount. It's gonna be just ten bucks and includes a razor handle, three blade cartridges, your choice of sa- shaving cream or foaming shave gel. What? I happen to like the gel, oh. and it's all gonna be delivered right to your door. Shipping is free. Ten bucks. All you gotta do is Harry's.com, and then use that promo code DLC. I'm so in. Yep, I'm so in. Now Perfect. wait, does Harry's ship to Canada? Is this gonna be an issue? That I do not know. Okay. Uh, so... This all could be a problem. I don't know. I hope so. I'm hoping so. <laughs> I'll Check just it use, out. I'll it. use my cross-border mailbox. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> awesome. Um, all right, guys. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on now to our playlist. Steve, uh, I know that you've been playing a lot of that Star Wars Battlefront. I saw your review on the Toronto Sun website. Yeah, um, it was not uh, not an entirely positive review. I don't Bought think and paid for. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've fallen in and out of love with the game faster than uh, Star Wars Battlefront. Um, really? Yeah, I mean, and it's. I think my sentiments echo a lot of what we're hearing about this game. I think I had a similar experience to a lot of people. It's 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 a game, and you guys have talked about this. You, you talked about it at length. It's a game that that really has been made with with love and craft and care in terms of of, of the visual presentation and the audio presentation and. And the first time I was like on a speeder bike going through the, the Endor Forest or the first time I got the Millennium Falcon in, in one of the dogfights, it's incredible. It just is it's, – it's, it's our Star Wars dreams come 
to life in a game. And then it just, there's nothing much after that. It's, it's such a superficial experience. I'm not even necessarily talking about the lack of campaign, although I would have loved to obviously seen a story-driven single-player campaign set in this world, these kinds of these kinds of production values. But it's just it's just not a super deep game on, on the multiplayer side. I think you guys were talking about how how uh, Walker Assault is kind of that is kind of the game. That is kind of the online mode. Everything else just feels like like dressing, and it's all kind of chaotic, and it doesn't really value or reward teamwork or or even a lot of strategy in a sense. It's just I, I, I've. I've never been so immediately hooked and then immediately unhooked by a, by a game as, as Battlefront. It's sad to me because so many people on, on Twitter that are my friends, I see talking about having a blast with this game and I want to rush out and buy it so that I can join them. And then I think to myself, I don't think I'm going to be playing this very long. Um, Christian, you're the, you're feeling the same way, right? I, I am not a huge fan of the game. And I, and I can't stop playing it. <laughs> really? How does yeah, that work? I don't know. I brought, I, so when, when you're on the road enough, you know, you have your portable consoles, but when you're set up somewhere like in Vegas or we were in uh, the Phoenix area for a long time, I brought my PS4 and I had metal gear and uh battlefront with me. And I kept going back to battlefront, the, the uh, fighter squadron or whatever mm-hmm. the flying mode is called. Mm-hmm. It makes me want a real proper rogue squadron again so bad, but I just, I kept playing it and I kept playing. I thought to myself, you know, this game for me isn't worth $60, but if they would have just released this fighter squadron version for $20, I would have bought it. I'm like, wait a minute. What? Like it's, it's, it really is. And I think there are some reviews out there. I don't remember where or else I don't mind saying what review it is. I don't know. But I read one, one review and it was like, leaving my Star Wars fandom aside, this is still a solid shooter. And and no, it's not like it's competent. Everything technically works. But like if you're not a Star Wars fan, if, if like you just had an objective that was like, go tie up the legs of this robot thing, you'd be like, why am I? T- I should blow it up with missiles. Why am, I, <laughs> why am I tying its legs? This makes no sense. Why does this one guy invincible when he waves a stick around? This is dumb. <laughs> but as a Star Wars fan, when that John Williams score starts and then it segues into original music a little bit later and then when you get the Millennium Falcon and it hums back into John Williams, oh my goodness. And I'd also, for whatever reason, I'm pretty good at the game, which I don't get because I'm not that – maybe all like the real FPS players are playing Call of Duty or Halo, <laughs> but I'm constantly top third. Um, <laughs> it's not good, but I don't know, man. I love it. Well, so I feel like this flies right into the face of what you said last week, which is, Jeff, do not buy this game. No, you said you weren't going to buy it, and I said that's a good choice, I think. And I agree. Same Z's. Same Z's. <laughs> it's not worth your money, but it's – I can't – it's it's so shallow. It's like ice cream that doesn't get you fat. It's weird. It's weird. So ice cream that doesn't get you that fat seems like the greatest invention of all the human <laughs> Okay, you're right. That's a bad <laughs> – I just invented the best thing. Everybody, go buy this game. I don't – I don't know. I mean, Steve, how – how many hours did you put into this game? Just, I'm, I've maybe put in a total of, I did the EA access first. Mm-hmm. So I was playing it before it came out on my Xbox. And then I got it for PS4. Um, uh, I'm trying to think maybe total right now. I'm eight hours, eight hours. Wow. Yeah. I put about 10 hours in for, to try every one of the, uh, to do all through all the single player 
scenarios, um, all the survival modes, and try each one of the, the multiplayer modes. And I enjoyed it all the way through, but I found as soon as I started going back and repeating some of the modes, with the exception of, of the, the fighter squadron, but even the fighter squadron loses its luster very quickly. I mean, it's 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 a very seamy experience across the board, and I find a lot of the multiplayer modes are are essentially the same experience just with a few random you know objective differences or you know you've got a hero in the mix and it just i don't know i'm a guy who put five and not not joking 500 hours into destiny and i love a well-crafted shooter i love online shooters but i just there's something beyond the actual hook of star wars itself there's nothing about about battlefront that really keep speaking to me and there's i've had so little desire to go back and keep playing it i mean that's also because there's a lot of other stuff out but yeah. it just it it, it hooked it, it hooked me with its nostalgia it hooked me with its with its love of the source material and with its with its dedication to reproducing some of the the experiences from the movies in a game but beyond that once that was over once that initial rush was over i just feel like it's, it's just very flat and i might not be past that rush i mean sitting here on my desk is my boba Luke, Anakin, <laughs> Obi Wan, Leia, Darth uh, Vader, and Darth Maul. Disney Infinity. Like I love, I love Star Wars, and part of it is too. And you know, I'm on the road. Uh, oh yeah, you're the only one here who loves Star Wars, Christian. <laughs> Real <laughs> distinction there you got. No, but I'm saying, where's that? Where does that shine wear off for you? Like the other comic on the show with me, uh, the headliner Dean Del Rey, great dude. Uh, we do that show, bitching together on all things comedy. I was like, dude, you got to come over and watch this because it's. You know, and he's like, oh, my God. And like I got in the slave one and he was losing his mind. So that, you know, made me want to play for a few more hours as well, because we're sitting there just like geeking out at at all this stuff. And if it if it wasn't Star Wars, there is no way there's no way I'd be playing it. I have way more fun with Destiny, but it is Star Wars and it's Star Wars done so well. And that's enough. And it's weird to reward them for that. But, you know. I went over to Anthony Carboni's house uh, the other day, Mr. and he was Star playing Wars. it when I walked in. And, yeah, Miss Mister Star Wars, exactly. <laughs> uh, he was playing it when I walked in and cursing at it, and he was playing the the snow speeder, trying to rope the the yep. ATAT legs, and he was just constantly try- pushing the uh, evade button, and it wasn't evading, and he was just like crash into the butt of the ATAT <laughs> with his speeder, and it would explode, and he would be mad. And, and, and I would be like, what this, this looks terrible. He's like, it is, it's terrible. I can't, I love it. It's the greatest thing ever. I can't wait to <laughs> unlock the, the next thing. And I'm like, what, what is happening? Am I missing out on something or am I avoiding maybe headaches? Maybe it is your level of Star Wars devotion then. I mean, I'm, I'm, I love I'm, Star Wars. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a hardcore Star Wars. I love Star Wars. I grew up with Star Wars. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked for the new movies, but I'm not, I don't have a desk littered with, Star Wars figures, you know, they're all in a neatly box in organized, closet. neatly organized. <laughs> so, Jeff, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you got to pick it up then. Maybe you, I'll game share it. Your level of Star Wars devotion will be high enough that this will this will be a great thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. What's your internet? Let's but try see, game I, share. I don't like. Yeah. Well, let's do. We should do game share. I bet it would look good on my new TV too. Uh, oh, are uh, you kidding me? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, but we. Uh, the thing I don't like though is the sort of multiplayer first-person shooters. So that's yeah. why I'm also staying away from it because I feel like if, if it had literally any single-player component, I would be all over it. 
Well, it's so got like, some. It's got some, right? Like there are missions. There are sort of scenario-based missions. Like you can do, you do a single-player version of the Walker Assault. You do, a, you know, driving an ATST on on Solus, whatever it's called. Uh, you do hero missions. You can do those single-player. So there is there is a good chunk of the game you can play by yourself, or some of it co-op. You can play the survival stuff by yourself, which I found actually really really fun and really gripping the the survival well, that was, it's basically that was my mode. favorite part of the beta for sure yeah. was the, the survival stuff there wasn't enough of it in the beta for my opinion and I, I would love to, i would do a horde mode for days on that game but i feel like that's not really the game yeah well it is, i mean there's four different maps and the the rounds are 15 waves each time and then there's four three or four difficulties for each map mm. to progress through they're not uh, normal and hard or whatever the first two difficulties I've been able to solo so not in- incredibly difficult and like my review of this game doesn't change in any way shape or form like if I'm giving it out of five it's a it's a three out of five to me but that also doesn't mean you can't like it and play it Disney Infinity isn't the best game ever but I enjoy it. you know what I, uh, mm-hmm. Darksiders 2 I don't think is a 10 or no the darkness I never got to Darksiders 2. Uh, Darksiders 2 Deathfinity Edition just came yeah. out, by the way, and it's fantastic. You're saying you loved it, yeah. Uh, it's great. I played the first one. Uh, Darkness. Darkness 2. Mm. I really enjoyed that game. It's still a 3 out of 5, but I thoroughly enjoyed playing it. You know, so it's this weird thing where, uh, or like Fallout, great game. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't know. Crazy. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll get it. There's, there's. I finished uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider this week, ah. and maybe when I get my fill of Fallout, which doesn't seem to have a bottom, uh, <laughs> so I don't know. It does. It's called divorce. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, let's talk about Rise of the Tomb Raider, shall we? I know, Steve, I know you finished it as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's just short of a masterpiece. I really do. I, I think it's one of the finest versions of this kind of game ever made. I mean, it, it, it stands shoulder to shoulder with any of the Uncharted's. In fact, I think the combat in this game is far surpasses any of the uncharted games it's i mean the the combat fits in a little more with with what the game is trying to do with lara croft right? like we know nathan drake he's essentially a superhero as is lara croft but the game has this kind of like conceit where it's oh well she's still learning the ropes right she's not a she's not a commando she's not a soldier and that's what i love about the combat in the game because it it feels kind of weirdly immediate and intense and when there's guys bearing down on you you're firing your ak-47 it's kind of spraying all over the place because she's not a marksman she's not a you know she's not a special ops uh, uh, soldier but my only complaint and i agree with you jeff i think i think rise of the Terminator is Definitely one of the best games of this year. My only complaint is that it it is, in a lot of ways, so similar to the first game. I think uh, mm. Crystal D said, "Wow, we we actually did a really good job of bringing back Lara Croft. Let's do it again, but let's basically just follow that sequel formula to the letter. Make it make it a little bit bigger, put a little more stuff in, um, have some actual tombs to raid, but." What? Not a I lot think they of doubled down on on the things that were great, and they kind of wiped away the few things in the last game that weren't so great. Like there's there's almost zero QTEs in this game, and that was the thing people mm-hmm. were upset about in the last game. Uh, all of the moments where you're doing what would be a QTE, almost all of them, you are still in the mechanics of the game, which I think is brilliant. Uh, the more of the tombs, there's nine of those optional tombs yeah. in this game, and each some of them, them are fantastic. Yeah, some of them are so great, <laughs> and and they're all so different from one another. And the puzzles make you feel brilliant when you get them right, <laughs> um, which is great. From the combat perspective, I think you're right, but I also by the end of the game, like I think the skill system, they're so generous with XP in this game, and 
there's so many skill points to be had that by the end of the game, you're a bit of a god. I was, I was a god. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was tr- shooting three arrows at once, all headshots to bad guys, uh-huh. uh, which w- made me feel amazing <laughs> and was awesome. So by the end of the game, I really felt like I was just this amazing machine. And so much of the combat in the game is backloaded to the end when you mm-hmm. are super powerful. Like there's all these skills that you see in the skill tree and you're like, why would I even need that? And then you realize at the end, oh, for this <laughs> battle, I need that skill, um, which is kind of cool. But uh, there are some sequences in Rise of the Tomb Raider that are among the most thrilling sequences, some of the best platforming I've ever had in a game. Yeah. And there's one sequence toward the end that takes place underneath ice yes. with these guys with the laser beams on their heads, on their guns, in red smoke. Yes. That is like un- – I will, I will never forget that. That is one of the best gaming moments I've ever had in my life. Do you think the uh, – what I found kind of – the thing that always jarred me about the first Tomb Raider was that – this was the introduction of Lara Croft, and and she's kind of a little bit naive. She's she's never been in, never been in a situation like this. Um, I know there was a lot of criticism about the first game because the first time she kills somebody, she she literally weeps about it. It's she's so so stricken at the fact she's had to take a human life, and then within twenty minutes, she's gunning down mobs of soldiers. Now they kind of yeah. they kind of were able to get past it in this game because it's a year later. You know, she's been around the world, but I still feel like there's a weird bit of a disconnect between the fact that this is Lara Croft who's a really good person everything she does in the game I mean she's got a a great heart and a great morality and and honesty and she wants to do good by the world but man she can she can and and kind of has to be a mass murderer through a lot of the game and I just found it a little hard to kind of sometimes sometimes uh connect the the action that I was playing which is super fun with the character who is doesn't seem like the kind of person who would do the stuff that I'm making her do well, there's one cutscene in particular, and I'll I'll try to be as vague as possible to avoid spoilers. But there's one cutscene in particular where she's with her like sidekick guy, mm-hmm. and he, she's separated from him, and she's shouting at him to murder someone, and he like he doesn't want to do it. He's like, I don't want to murder anybody, and and you realize if it was Laura in that room, she would have just shot him through the head, like no problem. And and in that moment in particular, I was like, oh yeah. She, She's an awful person, and and her sidekick is like, I I don't I kind of don't want to murder anybody. She's like, No, I've murdered dozens of people already. It's no big deal, dude. Just do it. Uh, yeah. And then she like encounters, you know, she encounters these native peoples at very late in the game. There's a there's a kind of a new faction that you encounter, and she doesn't want to understand them. No. She doesn't. She just starts slaughtering them, <laughs> and it's like. Oh, okay. I guess it was. I guess that was self defense. I don't know. But it is um, super fun because by that point yeah. you've got the, the all the powers and you're in that wild environment, that whole little uh, city and the place where that city is located, and yeah. it's basically a playground to go around and fight these slightly supernatural enemies. But again, that's kind of like the first game. The first game ended in much the same way. You built up to a certain power point, then the game said, "Okay, well, we can't really keep throwing armored human soldiers at her because she's too powerful. So let's call in these like kind of people who have." special abilities who are now a little more of a match for her. But yeah, no, it's, it's also one of the most gorgeous looking games of the year. I, I want to see oh, yeah. those visuals transplanted in like a, like a Bethesda game. I would love to see if for I know sure. it's not technically maybe possible because there's such different types of games, but a, but a follow game with, with Tomb Raider visuals. Oh, oh. oh man. You're speaking my language for sure. Yeah, it, it is, it is visually stunning and it never stops being so. And you, the things you do also, I would say the story 
if that was a Tomb Raider movie I was watching, mm. I think it would be a pretty satisfying movie. Like the story is good enough to hold up just from a story perspective. Uh, I thought it was very well written, Agreed. very well performed. And the, you know, from a visual sp- perspective, the cutscenes are so jaw droppingly beautiful. And yet you realize that they, none of them are pre rendered because right. depending on what outfit I'm wearing, she's wearing that outfit in the cutscenes. If I have an upgraded gun, the gun looks upgraded in the cutscenes. Like, I, I thought that was very impressive. Right. And it's so nice in terms of keeping you in. That's like one of my gripes with Halo 5, which I loved. But then it rolls into the cutscene, and I'm chief carrying a um, whatever it is, like an assault rifle. I'm like, I never used that gun. <laughs> I never, ever, ever right. had that gun. My yeah. complaint with, and I'm not, I haven't finished it, but I'm a, a good chunk into it. Um, the killing, I think they did a good job, air quote, solving that problem with this one, where they didn't have her sit there and reminisce on it right. for forever. It's just like, she's, killer's going to kill. <laughs> it's a video <laughs> game. Here we go. Um what I would like to see out of the next one is the gratuitous. You fell on spikes. I don't need it. I don't. I felt that fade they did the black. I felt they toned it down a little bit. I felt, I felt they did. I, I died a lot less. I mean, the actual deaths were in some cases super graphic. Like I think I got there's one tomb where you have to string these boats up in the on um, this temple that's right over a waterfall, and if you fall in the water, or your boat gets loose. You go, you get crushed in yeah. the rocks. That happened to me about. 15 times in a row yeah, as I yeah, try to solve too. the puzzle. There's still a lot of grisly deaths, but I think the number of times you are actually being killed is less. I know that there was a lot of talk over the first game about, about the number of times that, you know, she suffered this horrible grisly fate. I found it, Christian, you're right. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was exactly as grim, just not as frequent. But and you're, that's you're, wondering, you're, like the third guy at our first meeting, you know, the guy with the payday and then the guy with the PlayStation VR, like the third guy was like, Oh no, no, no. <laughs> Keep those in there. Like tonally, I just because when you murder the scores of other people, none of those other murders are that graphic. And then it's just your protagonist dying in a very I mean, it's like Punisher Xbox One level of uh gore. It's it's no more grisly than dying in Fallout. (laughs) You know, my guy in Fallout like will bend in half and explode (laughs) in But I feel like that's more cartoonish. Like this is like it stays on her and you see her soul leave her eyes as she dead stares at you before it fades. You're really just criticizing better graphics. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's it. I don't know, man. Uh, It's so, so good. And I I really, you know, there's so much rage. When I tweeted out, it's so great. So many people are so mad that it's console exclusive for a while. It's like, dude, it's, it's a great game. And I'm just happy I got to play it. It, it. It's it's long, it's deep, it's interesting. There's fun, cool side stuff to do, fun optional stuff to do. The platforming is thrilling. They do such a great job of conveying things in the game uh, in in such subtle ways that are are really great. Like she'll she'll say something if I'm stuck and I use her vision. She'll like be like, oh yeah, if I, if only I could get that thing out. And it's like, oh okay. I see. At least I understand the goal. I don't, maybe not know how to do it, mm-hmm. but at least I understand the goal. So much of that in that game is conveyed in a very smart way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I thought it was great. I did find that I found the survival instincts to be a bit of a crutch, though. I was spamming For that sure. button a lot, especially in the tomb. Sure. It's like, okay, what can I touch? It would be great if there was a way to to a little more organically kind of show what things in the world you can interact with, what you're likely to be looking for in a particular area. I just felt like, you know, I'd walk into a, a, down a new section of a tunnel and be like spam, spam, spam on the survival yeah. instinct just to say, oh, this is a section of wall I can look at. Oh, this is something I can read. This is something I need to pick up. This is something I need to knock down. But I mean, it's, 
It's gameplay mechanics. It's kind of the, I don't know, I'm sure what the way around that would be in a game like Tomb Raider. Yeah, no, I, I think that's literally my only complaint with the game is that I was, I was popping that button so often. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure how you fix it. I wish, I wish you could though, because I felt like as beautiful as the game is half the time, I'm looking at it in black and white, looking for gold, you know, right. Glowy bits to, to, that's the the keys to somehow, and I, I use Valve as this example often because I read an interesting, they put out like a, a mini doc about how they lead the player in the original Left for Dead, right, with lighting cues. And I know it's much easier to do just to kind of funnel you through what seems like an open space towards where they want you to go. But it's it's hard because games like Batman and Tomb Raider use this survival instinct, detective mode, whereas games like Call of Duty just literally put a dot on it and it's like, go here. Mm, but they yeah. need to find a way to contextualize within a world things that are interactable and things that aren't, but then they want to fill the world to make it look real and lived in. So like, you know, right. the last of us, a game I love, it's like, Oh, here's stairs, but they're covered by a bookshelf <laughs> and this bookshelf where you can see a bottle on it. You can't pick up that <laughs> bottle. Um, and I don't know if the technology's not there or maybe would it, would we like it better if it looked like old school animation where like the things that move are a little different color, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it's like that way to, have you not be in detective mode all the time because they want to show you the cool dope graphics but not just have um magnifying glasses all over the place which is what fallout uses when you try to look for things people are trying but no one's found the right balance yet. yeah yeah anything else on your playlist steve um well <laughs> i'm playing a lot of fallout 4 um mm-hmm. but what happens now when i sit down to play some follow usually follow 4 I, I, I warm up with some Rocket League first, and then my Rocket League warm-up turns into three hours of straight Rocket League. This is, <laughs> I cannot believe the legs on this game. I cannot believe a game that that so many of us got for free as part of our PlayStation Plus memberships has given me so many hours of joy. It's something so simple, and yet it is one of the stickiest games that I've played this year, and it's going to be a contender, I think, for for uh, a lot of Game of the Year lists. Are you guys playing Rocket yeah. League? Are you into the, the car soccer? I'll let you and Christian do this. Uh, I did not get into Rocket League. I appreciate it from afar. I recognize that it is novel and well-made, and it has certainly introduced a a new kind of addiction to people. Mm. But I I just – I've been playing Heroes of the Storm. So that's my (laughs) – it's my version of Heroes of the Storm. That's what I warm up with and cool down with and end up playing more of than I need to. So, Christian, you guys can talk about it. <laughs> have, have you played the Mutator uh, playlist yet, Steve? I have. You know what? I don't – I like the Mutators as a concept. I don't love the playlist, though. There's one or two good modes out of the uh, – I think it's six they've got in the playlist right now. Um, I like the the one that's got like the really small, fast pinball-type ball. Yeah. Um, but um, there's a mode that basically it just slows down time as you as somebody approaches the ball. Eh, it just doesn't really do much for the game. I wish that there was a way to uh, – Maybe there is a way. Maybe Psyonix is taking um, suggestions from the community on different mutator playlist modes. I have a lot of fun with my friends. We'll get in a game and we'll just like go hog wild. Everybody takes a turn firing up the mutators and picking different stuff. But the actual online playlists are, eh, they're kind of hit and miss. But it is fun. Yeah, it's I like, fun. I like them as like palette cleansers. Yeah. And it's interesting to go and play and then go back into rank matches and be like, oh, I stink. Like it. it <laughs> It's I guess and now they announced too the new DLC the Wasteland um free yeah. course or uh court or pitch whatever you want to call it in the game field is coming and that is going to be the first I'll just keep calling them pitches because it's pretty much soccer the first pitch that changes the layout it's wider the yeah. boosts are in different places but even with just the mutators going 
the way you read the ball and play the game, like you play the mutator playlist for long enough and then you get back into a ranked match or standard yeah. and it throws the physics. You're just like, it throws my head for a loop. It really does. I was playing in a, uh, uh, the rocket reational. It was kind of a, uh, a little tournament amongst members of the gaming press. And, uh, the mutators came out right before we, our team made it to the final four. The mutators came out right before that. I was playing some of it and I tried to go back to playing regular rocket league. I'm like, <laughs> I cannot touch these mutators again until we are done our actual tournament match. Cause it's, you get so attuned to the handling of the car and the speed and the handling of the ball. It was just, it was, yeah, it was throwing me way off. But yeah, I still can't believe this. Like I was a fan of the, uh, of a uh, supersonic acrobatic rocket power battle cars back in the day. Um, but nothing quite like, uh, uh, what Rocket League has done. It's just, it's, it's kind of all consuming. It's, it, it feels almost like gambling. I go in and I, and I play as I'm just going to play a match or two. And then it's like, Oh, well I won a couple in a row. Can't end on a streak. Oh, lost one. Can't end on a loss. Oh my God. It's like two in the morning. It's, it's, it's taken me away from Fallout four, which is a game I've been waiting for, for seven years, which is kind of uh, a <laughs> disgusting and yet impressive. Yeah. So, so quickly, because uh, I'm just curious and I know, I, you and I are both fans, and Jeff hasn't put in the time, which is fine. Um, percentage in each camera mode, chase versus ball, and then um, – oh, what was the other one that I was going to have? Oh, yeah, um, car of choice. Uh, the car, I think it's called the – oh, geez. Is it the Octane? Is that a car? Oh, goodness. I should know. It's one that's, that's got – fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. A little we'll, bit of spoiler. We'll, but I, uh, when I first started playing, I had to play in car, in car camera mode, the one that looks straight ahead. I could not get my head around ball cam. Um, but you can't – you have to graduate beyond that. And my buddy said, look, just spend a week playing with ball cam on. Spend a week. I know it's hard. You're going to miss every shot. Spend a week playing with ball cam on. I did. And now the only time I ever switch back to the front-facing car cam is when I'm just trying to line up on a boost. You know, I'll line up on the boost or switch to car cam, line up on the boost, and then switch back to ball cam. Other than that, I'm always on ball cam. What about you? Almost exclusively ball cam. I switch uh, not for boosting as much as I do for from going for like what would be the equivalent of a bicycle kick in goal. Like someone centers it and it's floating right above. I feel like ball cam, you lose where you are and you lose if someone's coming to like ram you. Yeah. Like what I found a good strategy for me sometimes is everybody goes for the ball and there's so much I've learned from being outplayed by people is – you're not going to make the ball, but I'll make it to the other guy's car exactly. before he makes it Just to the ball. Nudging a car can can do so much to prevent a goal or you know prevent them from lining up. And it's it's true. They'll see games where the ball's up in the air and everybody's just kind of sitting still, waiting to see where it drops. Like, nah, man, bash a car, bash a car, and you take a shot away from a guy. But um, yeah, and then I'll switch to car cam coming off the wall to like reline me up. Otherwise, I'll get loopy off there. But I feel like. You see some of the good players. You watch some of the Twitch streams of like how they shift and, and change, and it's it's an art it's between like, it, the two cameras. It's like they're playing another game, though. They play at a level that is just you know, it's so much aerial, so much, so many shots off the wall. I just watching those guys. It's a joy. I don't watch a lot of uh, Twitch streams of games because I I kind of find I like to play the games more than I like to watch other people playing the games. But when it comes to Rocket League, watching high ranked players play is it's it's fantastic. It's just the the, the level of skill and the things they can do in the air that, and I, you know, anytime I can actually get up high enough to make a successful aerial shot and actually connect with the ball, I'm like, yes, aerial 10 <laughs> points. Oh my God, I win the world. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Guess what guys? Because you guys did that. I get to talk about Heroes of the Storm. Oh, I want to hear that, about this because you played as a double buddy. Double buddy, also known as Chogall. Yeah. 
Uh, Cho'Gall is the ogre that they just brought into the game. The latest patch brought the uh, two-headed ogre into the game that they announced at BlizzCon. And those of us who were at BlizzCon get got Cho'Gall for free. And if you play two games with someone that doesn't have Cho'Gall, they get Cho'Gall for free. That's a cool idea. So it's this incentive to play. And it, it's, a, it's one character controlled by two people because it's a two-headed ogre. So Cho is this warrior type, the, uh, the sort of tanks of the game. And you control the movement and have a set of skills as, as Cho. And if somebody else plays as Gaul, which is he's described as Cho's other head, is, is just a head like stuck on the body of, of Cho. So you don't get any control over where you walk to or anything, but you are an assassin type, which is the big damage dealer in the game, damage dealer class in the game. And you are basically a ranged mage and you get to shoot off all kinds of stuff as somebody else is controlling where you walk and how, where you go and stuff. So you're basically like, I actually uh, uh, kind of describe it for people that haven't played MOBAs before. I describe it more like way back when you were playing the first Halo and you were playing co-op and, and you, you know, somebody jumped in a, uh, a warthog and you jumped on the, the gun of the back of the warthog. That's the experience. Like you don't have any control over where you're going or what you're doing, but you're trying to shoot everything you can on the way. Uh, and it is really fun. I mean, there was already a, a character in the game called Abathur that allowed you to jump inside other characters and ride around. But this is a completely different kind of experience. And it's, it's really fun. If you get on headset with somebody and you're talking back and forth, the most brilliant thing they did with it is it's not just the mechanic I've described so far. You also have an attack that is a joint attack. So the Cho character can throw out this sort of energy bowling ball thing that he rolls out from uh, away from him. And the Gaul player can then detonate that ball and explode it. And you have to time hmm. it correctly to get the most damage out of it. So you're working together. So the, you know, one guy lets it out and the other guy blows it up. Uh, it's pretty cool. And you also have talents that you can get throughout the game that affect the other guy's uh, skills. So you really are, you really do feel like this team. It's, it's forced team camaraderie, but it in the best possible way. Like you are really, you know, you are really depending on each other. And it's a blast. It's much more fun than I really thought it was going to be. They managed to make it very very fun do you think he becomes a tournament player at all are people going to be i I would be surprised i think i think his his downsides with a with a coordinated team are much much higher than his upside but Hmm. i'm very curious because we'll see how that meta changes over the next few weeks and see if the because you don't really see a lot of abathur in competitive play sometimes you do in the in the Cloud9 used Abathur to great success in the uh, their semifinal match uh, at BlizzCon. So, you know, maybe we'll see Cho'Gall. I think he's a very interesting character. He's a, he, he really throws a lot of things into chaos. Um, but And I love I, the I, fact I, that he exists because it's, you know, oh, yeah. people talking about Overwatch and the balance of characters there and the things that Blizzard has been able to do so well with heroes so far. And I know um, uh, League of Legends and other MOBAs you know, do this as well. But um, the one I'm most familiar with is heroes in the terms of like bringing in new characters that feel pretty different, but don't completely ruin the game. That's cool. Yeah. They say that basically every fourth or fifth character that they introduce, they want to be one of these wacky real sort of (laughs) up end the apple cart type characters. And, and they have done, you know, they have Abathur, they have murky, they have the lost Vikings. They have these really, really weird, wacky characters that are 
that are real different. So it's, it's cool. The next uh, fourth character is going to be the two ends, one T, and it's literally <laughs> three letters running amok on a map. It's crazy. Dude, nothing would make me happier. <laughs> literally nothing. nothing oh, and congrats on the birth of your first child. Nah, Get out of here, matter. doctor. Doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. You're ruining the best day of my life. <laughs> uh, I want to finish up this segment uh, hearing about uh, Guild of Dungeoneering because, Steve, you said you've been playing that Steam game, which which sounds like a board game. Yeah, it's way. that's what I kind of like about it. It's a, it's a weird kind of uh, take on on a card battle game um it just came out of nowhere i it landed on my radar because we did a review for it for uh, for ep daily and uh i've not stopped playing it I've, I've finished it twice now and they've introduced some some dlc it's a tough game to describe other than your delta deck of cards and it's you're building out a dungeon and populating with monsters as your character travels through the dungeon and it's a roguelike in the sense that after every every dungeon you you clear all your stats are reset, all your gear is lost. So every time you play, it's a little self-contained experience and you've got to figure out a way to level up your character enough to beat the boss monster at the end or lay out the dungeon in a way that makes sense. And then the battles themselves, again, are card-based and you have you know attack and defense cards and, and special effects cards. It's, it's much simpler than some of the... Uh, uh, the the collectible card games that we've played, but it's uh, and it's all done in this kind of hand-drawn style, very jaunty and very tongue-in-cheek, and it's it's great. It's a little game out of a, a small developer based in Dublin, Ireland, but um, it's one of those games. Does that ever happen to you guys? You come across a game uh, just because it pops up in a in a humble bundle or, or or somebody recommends it, and even though virtually nobody's really you know is really playing it, it just gets under your skin, and it's it's something you oh, fall yeah. back to again and again. Yeah, for me that's Card Hunters. That's um, that's a Sea of uh, Solitude. I think that was what that was called. Uh, a bunch of times this year. Uh, what's that dungeon game that's not quite out yet? A Dungeon of Despair or something like that. What's that called? Um, gosh darn it, my brain's not working. Anyway, it's happened several times for me this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this game, Guild of Dungeoneering, sounds a lot like a board game I've played called Dungeon Lords, where you're not playing the heroes in the dungeon you're playing the dungeon itself Mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting twist yeah you don't really have you can't affect you can't directly control the path your hero takes to the dungeon so you've got to lay out the dungeon and populate it with monsters in a way that you think will draw the hero to where you're trying to go or put a treasure down that you think will draw the hero in that direction and uh, yeah so you just you level your character up just in this one self-contained little incident of the, of the, the dungeon. And uh, if you lose, you start over. And if you win, you go back to your guild and all the gear you got and all the, all the experience you got is taken away. And when you take that character back in, they're, they're starting from zero again, which a lot of people don't like about it. I've seen some, some hate on the Steam forum saying, oh, I got all this good stuff and you know I got this plus two armor or whatever and now it's all gone. Well, that's the concept of the game. you know. That's how this particular take on the genre is working. But uh, yeah, it's, I, I would recommend check it out. Gilded Engineering, fantastic little weird dungeon crawling roguelike card battle thing. Cool. Uh, I've also started playing StarCraft II Legacy of the Void, which is Ooh, already wow. impressing me. I'll, I'll talk about it more as I play more of it. But uh, just started. It's it, it, RTS is almost feel outdated, and yet this feels fresh and storytelling is really impressive. Really. But, um, We'll move on now. I do have a uh, a Q and A, uh, interesting question that I want us to, to tackle uh, in in the time we have left. But first, I do need to thank our second sponsor, which is Squarespace. Oh my gosh, I talk about Squarespace a lot because I use it. My my website jeffcanada.com, was built on Squarespace, is housed on Squarespace, and the reason I love it is because I don't have to be an HTML expert 
to make a beautiful looking website, to have it be virtually impossible to take down. It's solid. It's trusted. It's intuitive and easy to use. The tool set is really nimble and really excellent. I can't recommend Squarespace higher. Squarespace is really your solution for anything you might need on the web, any kind of website, even a storefront or just a splash page. They have these cool cover pages that are just fun splash pages that you can do for, uh, you know, just advertising purposes. It's really cool. You can check it out yourself by uh, going to squarespace.com. If you go to squarespace.com slash DLC uh, and you put in the promo code Jeff sent me, you'll get 10% off your first purchase. You'll show support for our show, which is great. And if you order a whole year, you get a free domain name, which is really cool. But the best part about Squarespace is that you don't have to even put in a credit card to try it out. All you got to do is go to squarespace.com slash DLC. Check out, build a website, use their tools. They give you complete free run of the website. You can check out all of their great tool set there. What you see is what you get. Drag and drop just makes things super easy. All their templates. Build the site as you like it. See if it's something that you would want to use before you even have to give them a credit card. It is a truly free trial. And then once you do, you use that promo code Jeff sent me and you save 10% off. It's great. Again, uh, squarespace.com slash DLC and the promo code is J-E-F-F-S-E-N-T-M-E, all one word, Jeff sent me. Uh, All right, guys, I want to hit this question. This was sent to us. uh, I figure we have a Canadian on the show. We might as well do a Canadian question. This was sent from Calgary, Alberta. Uh, this is Regan, who says, I'd love to hear you guys discuss linearity in games and the perceived lack of value it entails. Why in games does having choice matter so much? Like Christian, I tend to enjoy tighter experiences with solid storytelling and gameplay loops, like an Uncharted game, for instance. Games like The Witcher or Metal Gear Solid Five don't appeal to me as much in the sense that I feel like the game was designed to the idea of the player having to carve out their own story. I personally love the idea of an interactive experience, as it is designed, that doesn't require my choice shaping the outcome. I like the author or the artist or the designer putting something in front of me, unaltered, that is, uh, in, it, in its entirety, and having me decipher my own greater meaning or own impact from their experience. The fact that these types of games are also usually less than 20 hours is also a huge bonus in my adult life that constantly demands my time. Uh, so this is from Regan. Um, I think this is a, a great topic to bring up in the light of the fact that we've been playing, you know, Fallout mm-hmm. and Tomb Raider and uh, going back and forth between these kind of linear games and these big, big open world games. So, Steve, what is your take on this question? Well, first, I got to say to Regan, I am originally from Edmonton, Alberta. So that makes you and I sworn enemies automatically. <laughs> I should. I, I thought you were going to go the other I way. Should I actually, no, no, it's, it's Edmonton and Calgary, uh, uh, lifelong Nemesis, um, oh. but uh, no, I, I I fully agree with that. I mean, there's, it's it's not that you can't have one without the other. We have great games that are very linear, and we have great open world games like Fallout or like Metal Gear Solid. I do think that uh, I, I agree that I sometimes crave the game creators' um, storytelling. You know, I love Fallout because I'm in this big, messy open world, making my own stories, stumbling across stuff. Um, probably way out of the order than the developers might have intentioned if they had any intention at all. But I do love a game that actually has a tight narrative that has a game like the last of us. It has a, a, a characters that I, I feel for and that I remember 
after the game is done. I think the problem is that we can't really ever combine these two. Um, it's just, it's kind of like one of the, the ongoing problems with open world game design is how do you have a game where the player has the freedom to do whatever he or she wants in this great world, but also have a sense of urgency around a narrative. And I mean, you guys were talking the other week about, about Fallout 4 and how your initial quest is for this, this looking for this person. And that is something that if it happened to you, that would be all you could ever focus on. And yet you can walk out in this world and literally spend 50 hours just doing side quests or exploring or shooting mutants rather than searching for this person. But that's, I mean, that's just the way the open world games are. I, I, I do think that these two pillars can, can coexist perfectly well. We've seen it. We've seen it done perfectly well. And I think actually Rise of the Tomb Raider does a good job of combining them. It's sort of open world-ish. You've got you know, your, your hubs that lead to different areas. You've got areas that are big and full of secrets to explore, but still quite constrained around their, their boundaries. But you've also got a really good through line and a really good narrative and a really interesting character and you know a plot twist. And you want to know how it ends. You want to know what happens after the ending. So yeah, I mean, I, I put value on both these things. I just don't think it's possible to really ever effectively combine these two experiences into one. Christian, you are name-checked in this in this uh, email because we had this conversation last week and the week before in, in reference to Fallout 4. So what's your take? Well, I mean, I think the, the main question asked is why in games does having choice matter so much? And I think the, the main reason why so many gamers put value in choice is that games were born out of people that play D&D and those style of games with the Dungeon Master and early video games um, – uh, text-based games and the Sierra games or all these games of these rich worlds where your choice was so much of what the game was built around. And then this narrative story-driven game came around later and people really latched onto it, but then it went too far. And I think you saw a backlash against it where a game was maybe three hours or four hours and not only super, you know, a narrative, but very on rails in terms of what you could do or experience as a player. There was a, a Call of Duty a couple of Call of Duties ago, maybe it's more than that, maybe it's like 10 ago. But, you know, there was a, a video online of a player literally just holding forward on the thumb pad or on the on the left analog and walking <laughs> and they never shot. No one ever shot them and they got in the Jeep and drove away. And it's like, this is ridiculous. Like my actions mean nothing. And so I think you want to have that balance of your – it's a video game, right? You're, you're doing something. You're not just watching a movie. And whether it's the combat or solving a puzzle, uh, you're interacting with this world. And so I understand that people love this big open sandbox world created virtual reality. I'm living, breathing in this thing. But I think – Maybe this is uh, semantics, but I think, Steve, you can have both, but it's a way of choice is, is in how it's perceived, and maybe I'm splitting hairs, but how you handle a combat situation in a game like mm -hmm. Tomb Raider, mm -hmm. or I think in a game, you know, I know that they're not the most beloved shooters, but I would say Resistance 3 is, is excellent, and the Resistance games in general had interesting combat encounters and how they did their went out of a choke point into a, a sandbox or halo, halo. God, mm -hmm. how could i not mention halo where your choice is how you encounter those enemies and yes everyone has to kill that elite before they're able to move on but the way i do it and the way you do it are far cry there are so many examples of games where that to me is the choice and that's what makes it engaging as a game versus a story or even the last of us the first time i encountered uh i think it's called a boomer 
Um, I was like, what, what is this? You'd never done anything like that before in the game and what I had crafted on me and how I was able to take it down. I was choosing what to do. And I found that compelling and engaging. I agree with this. The, the email though, I do prefer a tight story. I'm having a hard time. I'll just say this, uh, Tomb Raider dropped a bomb on my faves of the year list where, uh, I keep struggling to go back to Metal Gear, man. I love it, but I'm not being pulled back by a strong narrative the way every time I have free time and I'm not playing Rocket League or Battlefront. Um, <laughs> it's funny, right? Because Metal Gear Solid Five starts out with this very focused, very linear experience. And the first two or three hours of that prologue yeah. are like those old school Metal Gear games. Mm-hmm. And I felt so compelled, pushed through it. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom. You have ultimate freedom. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> go wherever you want. There's a thousand missions. You have a thing to build up. You got all these different guns. You can do it. Now what? And I'm like, uh, maybe I'll do something else. You know, maybe I'll. <laughs> so it's very interesting. You know, it's very interesting that that dichotomy exists within that one game. But I think to, to succinctly to recap what I said, I think players want to feel like they had some meaning in the game they mm. were playing, and that's why choice is important. Well, for me, it, it really comes down to this the fantasy of being in a place that is fully realized. So when I'm dropped into a, a, you know, the, there was a time in video games where you were dropped into a place and you looked on the horizon and you went, man, wouldn't it be cool if I could go to that? But you couldn't because there were invisible walls preventing it, or you were just walking down a corridor. Then we got to the place technologically where, hey, look, there's a big mountain over there. You want to go to it? Just go to it. You can go there. It has, it's a place. And I think for me, that that freedom is what is so magical and why, you know, when Regan says there's a perceived lack of value in constraining you to one set path, I think it's because the idea of setting you free in an environment feels greater than constraining you to one path. But I like going back and forth. I love games mm-hmm. that tell me a very linear story and and do it well i think tomb raider uh, has a fantastically told story that's told almost entirely through cutscenes, and that's great whereas fallout i'm learning a story because i walk into a building and i see where a can is or where you know somebody i was talking to somebody my friend jp and i were playing heroes and we were talking about fallout and our experiences with it and he was talking about like seeing finding this chair on a rooftop that had like a baseball bat and a couple of baseballs sitting next to it. And he just saw it. And then he like went uh, down uh, to, to the street level and walked down the street and then like way down the street <laughs> saw like a stack of baseballs. Like that's where the guy was hitting mm-hmm. baseballs from the roof and that's where they landed. There's no, there's no story there, but there is a story there just where things are placed. And it's in my brain that I'm putting these things together and creating the story. Mm-hmm. To me, that is a much more magical experience because it, it requires my cooperation. It requires my work. It requires my involvement to make it happen. I'm the missing piece, right? My putting two and two together is the missing piece to create that story. And that's what I think is so exciting about interactive storytelling and why these are, I think, perceived at a higher value. And, and a game like Fallout, especially because of its size and scope, that's something that your friend has seen that you may will probably have never stumbled across yourself in the game. And 100 people can play Fallout 4 and come across 100 different little 
little vignettes, you know, little skeletons in a certain spot or, or a place that none of the friends discovered. And it has nothing to do with the main quest line. It has nothing to do even with a side quest necessarily. But we all go into this game and come out of it with our own stories. And it's so exciting to be able to to share that. Like if we all play Tomb Raider, we've all, we, we, we may approach combat situations in different ways, but we all experience the same story. Whereas if we all play Fallout, we come out with these amazing little moments that are unique to our playthrough. I wonder if we're conflating story using the same word to describe two different things mm. because, uh, you know, everyone experiences the same story in Tomb Raider. True. Everyone experiences the same story in Fallout in terms of the missions end the way they end and they start the way they start. But, but in a lot of cases you have uh, a lot of control over how they start, how they end, even and how they start. And a lot of – and the way – my guy in Fallout can be very, very different from your guy in Fallout, but our Lara's are going to be exactly the same. Well, different right? outfits, but yeah, different I, outfits, and but different. I, I, I'm skill wondering sets, if, like, but... I don't, I'm not disagreeing with what Steve's saying, but I, I wonder if it helps even more if you call one like memories and the other narrative, and they're both stories. It, Does that make sense? It, yeah, but it, but it is still telling you a story. It's telling you the story of this world. It's telling you this is a a, a world that had. That has history and rather than walking up to a console like I do in Mass Effect and it being downloaded to me and going, well, the forerunners were here and the hoobada hoobada hoobada, <laughs> all that, you know, instead of it, it being downloaded, I'm uncovering it through exploration. Right. I'm finding so you're the you don't evidence. want to go to an external website and read about your grimoire cards? <laughs> oh, let's not start that. <laughs> all right. Well, there's an interesting ongoing debate. And, and you know, I think all of us like these different things in different ways. I think the interesting part is just really this year and maybe the last couple of years, what we've been seeing in these games that are traditionally one way going the other way. And I think like, you know, like the Witcher, like Metal Gear Solid, uh, these games that are now becoming open world. And I think that's more of like the technological technology allows it. So it, and it feels like an addition because I'm given all of the things I've had before plus freedom. That's my but then you get your gut spilled out, and then the revolution you started doesn't really matter because Britain conquers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let's move on now. We're running kind of late, but I do want to carve out a little bit of tabletop time. Right now. Right now. Steve, uh, it has come to my attention that you are a uh, a fan of Steve Jackson games in a pretty big yeah. Way. I don't know if I don't know how familiar you guys are with Steve Jackson games, but uh, they they're probably best I, known now. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna I was just gonna answer your question. I I uh, the very first game I ever played that I would consider a, a sort of hobbyist game. It really was the the um, gateway drug to get me into the European board gaming scene was munchkin yeah munchkin i think that's what they're they're probably best known for now i being a person of, of considerably considerably advanced age uh was actually <laughs> alive in the uh the, the 70s and the 80s and um uh steve jackson games that the, they came out with a line of pocket games that's kind of where the, the 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 company's origin comes from they came out with a line of these little tiny kind of paperback book size hard shell pocket games that, that uh, covered all kinds of weird niche little scenarios. Uh, the most popular of which though uh, was probably Ogre. And um, 
I would love to. It was a strategy game that pitted one kind of big, massive, powerful tank against all kinds of little infantry and, and lighter tanks and, and hovercraft. It was a very simple game, but uh, it just grew over the years and grew into a million expansions. And, and a few years ago, they came out with the Ogre Designer's Edition. This is a... a, a Speaking of growing. Yes, holy. Um, you guys have probably seen it or seen pictures of it. It's, it's, it's the biggest single biggest box game I've ever seen. Uh, I think it's the biggest box game that exists. Yes. I think it's the biggest mass-produced, sold box board game ever. But, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a secret. i got to confess right now on, on the podcast. I, I kickstarted this thing. My name is on the box somewhere. I've had it in my possession for, I don't know, when did they actually ship? Like a year or two ago. I've never broken the shrink wrap on it. I can't bring myself to open it. I, 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 really? I have this weird weird reverence for this 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 game and this particular edition of the game and i just feel like if i unseal it and and start breaking apart these amazing counters it's gonna somehow ruin it and that's so ridiculous i mean i should be playing this as often as i can i should be building all these amazing uh, giant units that they've got in the game but uh yeah i've always had like a weird weird kind of soft spot or obsession for the old school steve jackson games and um, I have a I have a considerable collection. I think I have every every title that they release in these weird little pocket game format uh, all through the all through the eighties. And there was a lot of them. Did you ever get into Munchkin? I never did. I sort of fell out of Steve Jackson games stuff uh, after a while. And then mm-hmm. what really brought me back was the fact that they were essentially rebooting Ogre, and they were going to be rebooting Car Wars, which is another game that I played yeah. for for ages and ages back in the day. But um, I've played a little bit of like their Illuminati uh, card games, but never, never Munchkins. Is it is it good? It, it depends. I, I think it's I think it's fun. It's not. It's broken in a lot of ways from a from a real strategic perspective. It's mm. kind of broken, and the end game can can really drag out. But it's fun. The art is fantastic. I'm a big fan of the John Kavalik art, and um, I, I think Steve Jackson Games as a company is really pretty cool and inspiring. Mm. They they are very transparent. They put out a, a newsletter quarterly that updates everybody as to all the inner workings of their company yep. and reveals all their financials and stuff. It's pretty cool of them. <laughs> uh, so they're a really neat company in a lot of ways. I've never played Ogre, but I was definitely paid attention to that, to that Kickstarter and the, the it's, it's massive. <laughs> like people should, should Google it. Cause it's, it's really quite Once something. Once you actually, but I have that same thing. So once you lay out the board, it 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 takes it's the size of a small room, you know. You've got to have <laughs> something bigger than a Pretty ping cool. pong table to to play it on. Like I think this was a kind of a lark, and and it really turned into people really supported it, and so it became like a mass market thing. But um, I have that same thing. I bought the um, the collector's edition of Puerto Rico mm. years ago, like three or four years ago when it first came out, uh, and it's got the like the metal coins in it and the really nice the redone nice art and everything. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is awesome! It's going to replace my Puerto Rico box. I'm going to, you know, play it. And I got it, and it's still in the shrink wrap. And I just play my old Puerto Rico because it's like, well, I don't want to ruin my exactly. nice edition. It's worth something. So it's it's a stupid. It's it stupid, is silly. and I know it's stupid. One day, anyway. one day. Uh, I wanted to bring up um, tabletop stuff for Thanksgiving. Uh, I I know a lot of people here in the states are probably going to be meeting with their family for Thanksgiving. And I am too. I'm actually traveling to Chicago this year for the first time for my sister-in-law's uh, at my sister-in-law's house in, in Chicago. And uh, we'll be, uh, there'll be six of us there that are, that are down to game. And I've been really kind of pouring over my collection, trying to decide what I'm going to bring 
the Thanksgiving. I, I, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, dilemma because you have a very specific group of people. I have my wife's parents and I have my uh, sister-in-law and her husband. And I want to be able to have one game that everybody can play. Six players is a tricky number to get right. I mean, if you have four players, there's a lot more options or even five players, but six is puts it in a very specific category. You want to have something that everybody will, will love and gravitate to and will sort of reveal to them this entire world of, of games that I like. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of party games I could pick. Wits and Wagers comes to mind and even games like The Resistance and Coup and Love Letter and games that are quick and easy. I think I might throw in a couple of those into my, into my bag. But I want to bring something that is substantial. And I'm thinking maybe Power Grid. Uh, Power Grid plays great with six. It is one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, it's a game about um, maintaining energy in a city and trying to make as much money as you can. And you have all these different types of energy, really dirty types of energy, clean energy. And you have to sort of maintain the different markets and try to figure out and, and then dominate the map, uh, the different power stations on the map. You, it sort of has some area control there as well. It's a game I love. It's sort of a medium to a slightly heavyweight game as far as uh, level of complexity. I think that these, this group would take to it very well, but I'm, I'm still not certain as to which games to bring um i'm thinking maybe a co-op might be good but i would love people to send me suggestions and i would love even more if you're table topping at any point this holiday season uh what you're playing with your family what you've introduced to people uh what you're playing over thanksgiving uh dlcfeedback at gmail.com i'd love to talk about those next week uh during tabletop time i'll i'll say how my experience went with either power grid or whatever i end up doing i have a whole bunch of games that I haven't played yet uh, that work for six, like between two cities that I kickstarted and some others. Um, I don't know if those are going to be the right pick either. So I'm, I'm very uh, uncertain as to what I'm going to bring with me to Chicago, but I'd love to hear everybody else's suggestions, everybody else's um, experiences over the holidays on the tabletop. Cause I think this is the perfect time of year to get things rolling. Christian, are you going to play any splendor? You think? Probably there's a good chance. And there's also some other, Oh, I don't know what it's called, but it's, um, I don't know. It's like a you balance little black and white pieces on a thing, and then you take. It's kind of like a variation of a Jenga type game where mm-hmm. someone messes it up at the end. Uh, they love that game. That's cool. <laughs> I think I love. That's one of my favorite things about the holidays is getting together with family and. Yeah. So, I hope people send that in. Uh, DLC feedback at gmail dot com is where you send that stuff. Uh, all right, guys, that's going to wrap up this episode. We still have our parting gift coming up, so stay tuned for that. But uh, Steve Tilly, thank you so much for being here, my you friend. You guys, it's been a blast. I'm so happy that you invited me onto the show. Absolutely, man. We'll have to have you back. This has been great. Uh, in the meantime, tell people where they can keep up with your exploits. You can find me on the Twitters at, at Steve Tilly, all one word. You can see my scribblings on the Toronto Sun website, which is torontosun.com or torontosun.com slash tech if you're looking for gaming stuff in particular. And you can see my dumb face on EP Daily, which is syndicated on City TV throughout Canada. And I think it might be on some U.S. stations as well. Yeah, man. A great group there. Yeah. I miss working Yeah, we miss you, you too. It was fun. Awesome. Uh, Christian, how about you? What do you got going on this week? Uh, Twitter is the easiest way to find me at Spicer, S-P-I-C-E-R, uh, twitching regularly on Thursdays, which would be Thanksgiving, uh, <laughs> this week. It's, uh, 
twitch.tv slash Christian Spicer. I missed last week because of uh, traveling and whatever. Um, and then the next time I'm out of L.A. is December 5th. I will be in San Francisco doing a, a guest set on a rad show called Cynic Cave that is in Lost Weekend Video in the Mission District of San Francisco. It's a Saturday night. Always, always a rad show. So if you live in the Bay Area, uh, check it out. Very cool. Uh, I have uh, stuff going on this week as well. We have uh, we have concerns at wehaveconcerns.com. It's 20 minutes, three times a week, comedy and science. This The episode that came out today, Monday, uh, one of my favorites in a while. It's all about auto-amputation. What? what? Yes, it's real. It's a thing. Your body will auto-amputate itself. What? <laughs> you should listen to it. It's great. The, uh, the, uh, the episode is entitled Totally Gone. So download that one. I guarantee you will laugh. I think it's a pretty funny one. I'm proud of it. Uh, also, we have uh, the Slash Film Cast. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we're taking a little break there, but there's really great episode upcoming, and we just did a great one about Spotlight. So if you're thinking about seeing a really great movie, uh, mm. we recommend Spotlight. That's at SlashFilmCast.com. And Tomorrow Daily is also going strong this week. We'll have many episodes talking about stuff at TomorrowDaily.com. So check out all of those, and also follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Kanata with two N's and one T. Let's wrap things up, guys, by giving people uh, something to get them through their Thanksgiving week with our parting gift. Hey, give us a suggestion of what to do this week. Give us a parting gift. This is your parting gift. Steve, have you got a suggestion for the folks? For parting gift or something not gaming related type thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Can, I, can I talk about Walking Dead on TV? Is that okay? Is, is, you is can a, talk about it. Is this a safe it. space to you talk about Walking can. Dead? <laughs> okay. I don't watch that show. I know I'm a bad geek, but I uh, I, I stopped watching that show in season one and haven't Okay. Back. See, that's just it. I, Am I, I know it? a lot of people who got through the first couple of seasons, especially season two, and said, this is not what I want out of my zombie apocalypse TV show, but it is really... As one of the biggest critics of The Walking Dead, I think it's really bounced back the last couple of seasons. And even though this season has been uh, a little annoying with a, a central mystery that was revealed on uh, Sunday night's episode, which we won't talk about in case people haven't seen it yet, um, I still think it's been really strong. Um, it's it's a show that does a good job of taking elements and the, and the feel of some of the stuff in the comic book, but then just putting its own spin on it. And... And I know some people don't like that it doesn't follow the comics as closely as it could, but I think that it's one of those things where you got to have two very separate entities and properties. And I think as a TV show, The Walking Dead is very good and has definitely got better over the last couple of seasons. So if you were one of those people who said, I spent all of season two on that stupid farm with, uh, you know, with the zombies and the people talking to each other, I didn't get in the house, Carl. <laughs> Come back now. It's gotten a lot more exciting. It's got a lot more interesting. Or catch up. You know, the, I think a lot of the seasons are on Netflix. Catch up. And um, yeah, so it's now on its next week is the mid-season finale. It'll be back in February. And I'm pretty stoked for it. Very cool. I heard the episode last night riled some people up. So I don't know. I don't know what to think. Um, <laughs> Christian, what is what is your parting gift? It's a tease. You don't even know about this, but enough people have asked uh, that at the end of this episode, if you made it this far, congrats. It's Thanksgiving week. You'll be with family. You'll need something extra to listen to. Enough people have been consistently asking for, I posted a picture of it, but my my pitch for a Halo story. So when all this is said and done and you you leave the world a better place and all that good stuff, there will be an extra little audio drop of me telling you my pitch 
for a Halo story. So hang out five more minutes and you'll hear it. It'll be on the RSS, the iTunes feed. So if you're listening live, download the app. I'm intrigued. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, A a Halo story, an original Halo story by Christian Spicer. Very cool. As told by Mark from Marketing. (laughs) (laughs) So much great TV to binge through uh man i know everybody's talking about jessica jones as am i i was a fan of the comic book we talked about that a few weeks ago i don't need to tell you about jessica jones you already know it's great uh maybe i do need to tell you about with bob and david uh because christian yelled at me about talking about master of none i think both of them are excellent but mr show with bob one and david is great the other one's excellent mr show with bob and david is is probably my favorite sketch show of all time and it it i just i <laughs> quote it constantly it's great and the fact that they made more of them, basically, uh, in in the guise of a new show called With Bob and David, only four episodes with a fifth episode that is a sort of behind-the-scenes featurette. But man, already there's a bunch of sketches there that I quote. Uh, it's hilarious and daring and brilliant. And it's it's been, what, 15 years or, yeah. or more since they made uh, Mr. Show, and yet it feels like this didn't miss a beat. It feels like the same... It's the same people, all the same people, not just Bob and David, but their entire crew. And it, it really feels like the same level of the same level of subversive, daring, courageous, funny stuff. So uh, check it out with Bob and David's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original, but also Master of None, I think, is excellent, too. Other Christians. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Uh, Thanks to Steve Tilly and Christian Spicer. Thanks to Maggie and Hattie and Dan and all the folks. Really, we're so grateful. This is a week of thanks. This is a week of Thanksgiving. And uh, I know I speak for Christian when I say we are so grateful for all of you listening. We're so grateful for those of you that get to hang out with us during the live show in the chat room. You guys are really bring so much to the show and add your commentary with us live. Uh, But all of you that download us, that tell your friends about us, that give us reviews on iTunes, you are the life's blood of the show. And we're so grateful to be able to make the show for you. So thank you very much. As I'm sitting down to my delicious turkey dinner, (laughs) I'm going to be thinking of each and every one of you because you get to, you really, uh, (laughs) I get to do what I love to do for a living. And it's because of you. So thank you very much. Um, we will be back next week. I'm excited. Stick around for Christian's Halo story, though. I want to hear it. I'm excited to hear it. Uh, but until then, until next week, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. Hey guys, this is Christian Spicer here. Enough people have asked for my Halo story pitch. I posted it online. Um, But people kept wanting to hear it or see it. So as a bonus at the end of the Thanksgiving week episode, here it is. Uh, My storytelling will not be as captivating as Kanata telling a story. Remember that story about a deer from Weekend Confirmed? That was great. I should have paid Kanata to read my story. It's a story 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 pitch. Don't worry, it does not ruin any of the story in Halo 5 if you have not finished it yet. Um, It is no way connected to Halo 5. It's just uh, kind of like my pitch for Mr. Awesome for a fallout story i just think that sometimes simpler can be better when what the game what makes the game fun is the mechanics of the game so focus on that so this is a rough story pitch for a halo game it's light on lore pure halo purists will probably be offended that i don't take enough 
Halo lore into account, but I think it'd be a dope game. Maybe you guys agree. Maybe you don't. So you're playing as an ODST-type soldier. You're on a mission to visit a distant planet to recover some resource. It doesn't matter what it is, but something valuable that you need to go get. Yes, this might sound similar to something like Avatar, but that's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. The thing is, securing this resource is the reason for your strike team's visit. Maybe it's a root of an alien tree that helps cure a disease. It's something like that. It's important, and these soldiers aren't looking to take over and or destroy the planet. They just need to get some samples and bring it back to the doctor for further research. The doctor would have a name. Dr. Titan. It doesn't matter. An important doctor. Because this planet might have some hostile animal-like creatures on it, and the terrain can be rough at times, the doctor is back at a distant space station while you can leave in a smaller ship with your team to head towards the planet. You communicate with the doctor via hologram link. Think Cortana, but this isn't an AI, just a way to communicate with the doctor and have the doctor interact with some of the terminals in the world. While your ship is en route to the planet, it's struck by a missile. The ship isn't totaled, but it's not in perfect shape either. Suddenly, enemy ships, Covenant, whomever, let's just assume it's the Covenant, fill the screen as they come out of warp. The Covenant broadcast to your ship that you've entered Covenant-controlled space. The Doctor tries to broadcast back that you're in neutral space on a scientific mission. The Covenant tries to broadcast back their reply, but the feed is choppy. Dun, dun, dun. The commander and the doctor instruct you to press on. Recovering this herb or whatever it is is important. You need to keep doing it, soldier. Go, go, go. Land, get the resources, get out. It's easy. You'll be gone before the Covenant knows what's up. You're a small team. No problem. You board a smaller landing ship, think something like an escape pod, and make for the planet. It's you and one other dude. Uh Uh-oh, co-op on your pod. Three other pods also eject towards the planet. The Covenant sees the pods and open fire. Yours is hit, spins out of control towards the planet. The other pod is destroyed. Two others seem to make it to the planet. You crash land on the planet far away from your original landing point. You check in with your commander and doctor. While on the comm with the commander, you hear the Covenant take control of the ship and kill your commander. The doctor tells you to press on to get the herb, root, whatever. You've gone this far. We've lost this many lives. We can't leave empty-handed, soldier. You press on. You send off an SOS signal for support, too. You press on, fighting against hostile animals. This isn't Far Cry, per se, but it's more animal-like than enemies in the Flood or even the dogs that you see in Halo 4. Uh Uh-oh, the Covenant are also in tow coming down for you. Your SOS signal is picked up by none other than Master Chief. Surprise, surprise, right? It's a Halo game, of course. He's en route. You continue on your mission. You fight those animal things. You fight Covenant. You find one of the other pods. The ODST soldiers are dead. So you're having this awesome Halo combat in this fun, beautiful world. That's what you want to be doing. You're fighting stuff. You're killing stuff. You fight, 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 fight. Fighting in Halo is fun. Why are you fighting? Easy. You went to this planet and the Covenant told you not to. But why didn't the Covenant want you to land there? Isn't this neutral space? Who freaking cares? The Covenant were trying to answer that question, but the feed cut out. Why do you, the player, need to know? It's as simple as this. Humans and Covenant are two races that don't like each other. This sets off a battle. These games are fun because of the sandbox-like fights. This game has those. You're fighting. It's enough of a hook to get you fighting. That's all you need. You keep progressing because you're trying to get the root or whatever along the way, and you keep hitting setbacks. It's classic storytelling. You got to get the MacGuffin. You come across these roadblocks along your way. You find another pod. The ODST-type soldiers aren't dead. They're also not there. What happened to them? Well, it turns out they've been captured by a small Covenant group, and you have to go rescue them before they're transported back to the Covenant ships. This gives you a break in the main through line. So you're not just constantly going from point A to point B to get the route. Now you have a side mission that has stakes, an artificial timer on it, not a real in-game timer, but something to pull you forward, do this other thing that is now important to you. And depending on how the opening cutscene is set up, 
Hopefully there's a little bit of emotional weight set to these other soldiers. If not, it doesn't matter. Leave no soldier behind. Again, what makes Halo great is the shooting, the mechanics, and the fun. You don't need to bog it down with too much narrative BS. Then you're back on your mission. You get to the temple where the root is or whatever, and uh uh-oh, you get surrounded by Covenant. You're not going to win this fight. You are bogged down. You are trying. You are peppering away. It looks like the trailers for the other Halo games. It is you against the world, but you're not Master Chief, but you try. You try to win this fight anyway because that's the type of soldier you are. That's the type of group you are. Boom, boom, boom. You're making a little dent, but crap. Heavy reinforcements arrive. You're pushed back. You're cornered. This is your Alamo moment, right? Remember the Alamo. Defending to your last breath. This is your last stand. You're hunkered down. You're ready to go. You're taking out as many Covenant as you can. One of those dudes you rescued earlier dies. It's rest in peace time. Then out of the corner of your eye, a comet streaks through the sky and smash. It's Master Chief landing in his pod, and it's go time. You take control of Master Chief, and you're so freaking overpowered compared to these ODST little whiny soldiers, it's not even funny. You almost can't die. You're taking down elite left and right. You take down a scarab, then another, then another, then another. You run in the temple, get the root or whatever with the ODST guys running support behind you, but really they're just hiding behind you because you're killing everybody. You get the thing, you run to the top of the temple, Chief activates a beacon on his wrist, his ship comes out of stealth mode, and you transport onto it and blast the crap away back to the doctor with the cure for this disease. It cuts to an old dude then sitting around a table with other old dudes. It's your original ODST character as an old man. He tells the other old dudes, quote, and that's how I first met Master Chief. This is some Princess Bride-like stuff. I get that. But you know what? It's cool. It works. It's been done in storytelling since the Odyssey and before that, where you have someone recounting a story of awesomeness. And it also makes for some sweet commercial spots, let's be honest. The other guy's not along. The one of the other dudes opened his mouth and starts to say something like, you think that's crazy? Let me tell you about Operation Zeta or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. Then it smashes to the credits the name Halo, the Legend of Master Chief. Each single player campaign is about six to eight hours long. They're released digitally. There are four chapters, each person that you see at the end there, telling their story about how they met or interacted with Master Chief. Sometimes you play more as Chief, others less. Basic multiplayer is also included with each chapter too. Each chapter then adds a few new map packs. Each chapter retails for, I don't know, $29 or $39.99. The thing is, the story isn't enough to give you a reason to go to a planet and fight. But it doesn't need to be more than that. All you need is a reason to get a group of people down doing something awesome and to make it feel epic along the way. That's my pitch for a future Halo game. If you liked it, let me know. If you didn't, you don't need to tell me. It's okay. Anyway, that's it.